sometimes I wonder why I spent the lonely Welcome to Subtle Beast, everybody. I am your host, Foltz. With me, as always, my co-host, my main man, some may even say the best man, Mr. Steve Apostolavlis. How are you, brother? Wow, Foltz. Thank you for that amazing introduction. I'm awesome. How are you? I'm great. I think we have uh, quite the show today. It's going to um, it's going to enlighten you on a lot of... Uh, sayings that you may have heard throughout your life. I'm pretty sure the list that we put together is uh, pretty, it'd be pretty accurate to say that most people have heard these, but you probably don't know where they originate from. I think this show has been years in the making. I do too. I mean, some of the times when we're putting shows together, it can be absolutely stressful. And then we'll say, okay, we, we have enough information now, but with this one, we just kept going and there was a, there's just so many, so we wanted to pull out the best ones. And uh, not only that, we're going to pull out all the stops tonight with this show. So it's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to learn something. Guarantee someone along the lines that you're hanging out with is going to uh, mention one of these. And they may even say, I wonder where that came from. Well, you'll know now. And you can be like, oh, well, actually. And it's going to just make you sound a whole lot smarter. You know what? I, I attribute some of this show to our dads. I know your dad was a history teacher. Oh, yeah, for sure. So a lot of, um, you know, where did this come from and origins, he would be able to explain to you. My dad has a passion for getting to the root of things, and he does the same thing. He, he comes, you know, with these sayings, and he'll say, you know where that came from? Exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then he'll enlighten you. So we've been used to this, but... Uh, we're hoping to enlighten you some more. Exactly. So, since we uh, are promising to pull out all the stops, that's going to be the first one that we start off with tonight. So, pulling out all the stops. Now, it has a meaning of to make a very great effort to achieve something. But the origin is organ consoles have knobs that are called stops. Without them, the organist cannot or can play at a much higher volume. So pulling out all the stops would let the organist squeeze the maximum value out of the instrument. And that's what we're going to do tonight. Our microphone is the instrument, and we are going to squeeze the maximum out of it. We're going to pull out all the stops. So that's a, the first one there. And you know what? I wouldn't have known that. If, if you would have said, Steve, we're going to pull out all the stops, what's that mean? I would have said something like... Uh, Maybe they put something in front of the wheels of a truck or something. You pull the stop out, or I would I wouldn't have yeah. done that one. Or pulling out all the stop signs and just going for it. <laughs> right, 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 you right. Know? But it actually, it's an old organist and somebody that plays an organ. They're uh, to get the most volume, to get the thing as loud as possible. They pull out all the little knobs so that as much volume comes out of it as possible, and they pull out all the stops. And that's I wonder, like if. Uh, if, if the organists in that community, like people that played the organ, came up with that, or if when people were listening to them, you know, and they were going off on their organ, and people were like, pull out all the stops, <laughs> and then just go for it. Or, or afterwards, they asked him, like, hey, man, it sounded like you pulled out all the stops there. Did you, did you get them all? Like, He's yeah. Like, they were out. I pulled every stop out for that one. And I appreciate you noticing. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, so we're going to go back. Steve, why don't you give us why people get, or why it's called getting cold feet. Well, this one's cool, um, and cold feet comes most of the time when you're talking about cold feet. It's when somebody's getting married, and they are thinking about backing out of the, the marriage. But the meaning is loss of nerve or confidence and the origin, this idiom, originates from a military term where the warriors would be sitting around in the cold, and if they had uh, frozen feet, when it came time to battle, they were not able to rush into battle because they had cold feet. So there you go. And anybody that's married out there, I mean, they could probably tell you it can be a war sometimes. <laughs> so if you're getting cold feet about your wedding... We, we can understand. We understand what that is. Now, you may uh, have uh, at your job, you might have like somebody that's always telling you what to do, the supervisor, whatever, your manager, your VP, and people like to refer to them as, oh, he's the big wig. Well, that origin back in the 18th century. The most important political figures would wear the biggest wigs. Hence today, influential people are called big wigs. So they're the big shot. They're the ones that run the show. They're the ones that walk around thinking that they're just the greatest. And I've heard it often used in remote locations. Like if you're not at that um, actual facility, so you would say like, oh, the big wig's down there. Right. Or yeah. the big wig's over there. Or the big wig's up there. Yeah, or if you're talking to somebody that you say, yeah, I was talking to somebody that works at your company, and then you mention their name, they're like, oh, that guy's a big wig. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. It's a reference. So take us away with this next one. Oh, dude, I love this one. Me too. So this one, uh, it comes from England. It is when you're looking outside and it's raining cats and dogs. Where did that come from? Hey, it's raining cats and dogs out there. Where did it come from? So the meaning of that one is it's when it, the meaning is when it's raining very hard. And the idiom it has two stories that try to explain its origin. The first explanation says that the origin of this phrase comes from the Norse mythology where cats would symbolize heavy rains and dogs were associated with the god of storms, Odin. But the second one's the one I like. Me too. The second version says that in the 16th century in England, houses had thatched roofs, which were one of the few places where animals were able to get warm. They would sit up on top of those thatched roofs, and because heat rises, the heat from the homes would heat the animals up on the roofs too. But sometimes, when it would start to rain really heavily, roofs would get slippery, and the cats and dogs would fall off, making it look like it was raining cats and dogs. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense, because people would be like, how hard was it raining? Raining cats and dogs, like, oh, wow. Wow, yeah, that was really hard rain. The cats and dogs were coming down. <laughs> exactly. I love that one. So this next one people will use when, let's say you get in an argument with a, with a family member and uh, then you patch things up or, or if people are trying to get you to get back together with a loved one, that's someone that's related to you, they'll say, well, just remember, blood is thicker than water. Now, that's the meaning that family relationships and loyalties are the strongest and most important ones. The origin, even though many may think that this saying means that they should put family ahead of friends. It actually meant the complete opposite. The full phrase actually was, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. 
and it referred to warriors who shared the blood they shed in the battles together. These blood brothers were said to have a stronger bond than biological brothers. So great. It means the opposite of the way we use it. Yeah, so if, if, if someone's trying to get you to make amends with a family member that just rubs you the wrong way, and they're like, hey, remember, blood is thick in their water, be like, yeah, I know. <laughs> don't do <laughs> yeah. it. And they, they would be like, well, then do it. And you'd be like, no, that's not what it means. Like you, you see how ignorant you sound right now? It's just an, uh, an American thing. We, we made it yeah, of the course. opposite. Of, what of course. It, we of changed it to what we want it to mean. Oh, <laughs> uh, This one coming up here is really, really cool. Um, and I don't know that a lot of people, I don't hear it like on the streets, but I have heard it many times. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. This one means to find fault with something that has been received to you as a gift or a favor. While buying a horse, people would determine the horse's age and condition based on its teeth and then decide whether they wanted to buy it or not. This is the reason why people use this idiom to say that it's rude to look for flaws in a thing that was given to you as a gift. Yeah, so if someone gave you a horse and you were looking at his mouth to see how healthy he was, be like, hey, it's you're not paying for it. But yeah, I mean, if they give you anything, like you, you get a, well, yeah. you get a car, and you get a car from somebody, and you're like, well, it does have high mileage, and you're like, hey, don't look, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Exactly. You somebody gave you that for free. Don't look at the flaws in it. Yeah, I mean, I was given my first car by my dad, and I can remember being like, well. You've had it for a couple of years. Hey, it's going to get you from point A to point B, back to point C. It's going to be good. That was it. That's all. I was looking a gift horse in the mouth, and I shouldn't <laughs> have been. But you know better now. Yeah. So now if that happens, I definitely won't turn a blind eye to it. Good one. Which means pretend not to notice. Now, its origin is to believe that this phrase originates with naval hero Horatio Nelson, who used his blind eye to look through his telescope. This way, he was able to avoid signals from his superior, who wanted him to withdraw from battle. He attacked, nevertheless, and was victorious. So there's a, a guy that has a like a patch, or a, he's blind in one eye. Yeah. And his superior is using flags, and he's flagging him, telling him to retreat. But the guy takes the telescope, jokingly, to his crew, kind of, and flips it over to the eye that's that he's blind in. Right. And he says, I see nothing that yep. means to retreat. We're going to attack. And yeah. he ends up winning because he turned a blind eye. Yeah, just like, I mean, today, if you're with one of your friends and they do something that's a little bit shady and uh, you saw it, turn a blind eye to that. I didn't see it. You just pretend like you didn't. Exactly. Now, I'm sure we've all done this as long as you're 21 and above here in the United States. Ah, let's have one for the road meaning a final drink before leaving a place. Now that meant, or the origin during the Middle Ages, the condemned ones were taken through what today is known as Oxford Street to their execution. During this final trip, the cart would stop and they would be allowed to have one final drink before their death. So ominous. Yeah, I mean, I guess it could... Uh, If you're if you're having one more for the road these days, you probably shouldn't be driving because it might be your final drink. You know, we still do that um, with the death penalty. 
you get your final meal. Oh yeah. And they they honor it still to this day. You could you could tell them, you know, I want steak and a beer. And they would give you a steak and a beer the night before your execution. Yeah, I mean, it's weird that to be like, well, I'm hungry. They're like, but you're going to be dead in a couple of hours. <laughs> yeah, but it's just a, a, I guess, a tradition that we honor still. Yeah, man needs to have one last meal before he leaves this world. I guess, regardless of what he's done. I, honestly, you know what's kind of weird is is uh, still killing people. That's. Weird. Yeah, that is. Giving somebody a steak isn't as weird as killing them. I mean, I always thought, in my opinion, that it would be worse to be in prison for life. Yeah. Put to death. I mean, these people, now granted, a lot of them are on death row for 25 years, but still. I mean, if you were young and committed a, a heinous crime and you get put to death, in my opinion, you got off light. I'll tell you a story about that I just heard on Saturday night. The drug problem in China compared to the drug problem in America. So our president, one of our past presidents, was meeting with the president of China, and they were discussing the drug issue that America is facing right now with uh, the opiate crisis and it coming through our borders. And they said, why, why does it seem like China is so much better off? And they said, quick judgment, quick turnaround on judgment. If we find out that somebody has, is selling drugs and we can prove it, then uh, we have a quick trial, we, we make the judgment, and, and then we kill them. I mean, That's wow. how they stopped it. I mean, if, if you're faced with death, really, by anything, by a, you know, a, a dictatorship or you know, a communist, you're most likely not going to do it. Right? I mean, it'd be like, that'd be like, yeah, this ain't worth it. Yeah, they, they, they said there's hardly ever a thing there. Like, it doesn't even happen. Right. I mean, and if, oh, and if you know if there's a quick trial, it's not coming in your favor. No, you'd be getting that one for the road. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. There was a movie years ago that's good. I think it was called Broken Down Palace, where these two girls, they go to someplace in Asia for vacation. But some guy stuffs their suitcases. He's like, hey, meet me up in this other country. I'm catching a later flight. But I guess he had put heroin in their bags as a decoy so that he could get his through. Well, they got caught. And they were sentenced to life. Ooh. I mean, good movie. Good movie. Definitely worth checking out. Steve, you ever go on a honeymoon? <laughs> I, I did go on a honeymoon. In fact, because I'm a traditionalist, because I'm, I'm old school, I took my honeymoon at Niagara Falls, Pennsylvania. Nice work, Steve. Yep. Took my, my brand new bride up to Niagara Falls, and we checked out everything. We stayed on the American side because... They, they closed the border. You now have to have a passport to go through. Although when I was there as a 23-year-old, you could just use your uh, valid um, state ID, your, your driver's license, and you could go across the border. But then things uh, got a little tighter. You know, we had 9-11, and now the border is much tighter. So we stayed on the American side, but it was really nice. We had our honeymoon. And a honeymoon actually means a holiday spent together by a newly married couple. According to, to tradition, a newlywed couple would have to drink a beverage with honey made out of honey for an entire month for fertility and good luck after they were married. So that's where the honeymoon, well, for a month, the, the lunar phase of the moon, and the honey that would make this drink put together would be 
drinking that honey for one moon phase of honeymoon. I love it. Yeah, there you go. That's a good one. This next one, uh, Steve and I, when we were putting this show together, we were discussing how in my household, we heard this term all the time. Uh, we had a lot of, uh, like my mom was in show business and w- we all did plays and my family owned a dance studio. So there was always performances. And so we would always hear break a leg. And then Steve said, you know, well, growing up with you, I had heard that term a lot coming <laughs> in, uh, helping out with stuff. And uh, so... Uh, yeah, so it always was a, a way of saying good luck to somebody. But the origin, it's believed that the phrase dates to World War One in Germany. And the saying used by German actors, Halls und Beinbruch, which translates to broken neck and broken leg. Besides that, it still doesn't make sense why you would wish someone to break a leg. Well, as it turns out, popular folklore down through the ages encouraged people to wish others bad luck, since it was believed that wishing someone good luck would tempt evil spirits. So you guessed it. People started wishing each other to break a leg in order for them to not break one. Hey, folks, for the rest of the show, Halls und Beinbruch. (laughs) (laughs) And the same to you, my friend. Ah, Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Take us in. This... Uh, this one is cool, and when we were reading it, it's so not what you think. That totally. It, it's outstanding, really. Uh, have you ever given someone the cold shoulder? So to give the cold shoulder means to reject or be deliberately unfriendly to someone. This saying is uh, the saying that it is currently considered to describe someone as being rude was actually considered an act of politeness. During medieval times in England, after everyone was done feasting, the host would give his guests a cold piece of meat from the shoulder of a beef or a pork as a way of showing that it was time for everyone to leave. Yeah, I mean, I can almost see how that got misconstrued by saying that it was currently that it's currently described as someone that was rude. So over time, people were just like, well, you know, you'd give a cold shoulder to this rude person that you wanted to leave your house. Well, yeah, you could say that you were being rude by giving them the cold shoulder because you were asking them to leave. But, I mean, every party's got to come to an end, right? You got to... Oh, definitely. You got to leave at some point. So how do you know when to leave? Well, you know when by this signal, and the signal is, I'm going to wrap up this cold piece of pork. I'm going to give it to you, and that means the party's over. Yeah. My mom used to say, we should go to bed so these people can leave. (laughs) 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 All right. So... I'm sure as a kid, even probably to this day, when you're hanging out with your friends and someone else is driving, you're going to want to be riding shotguns. You're calling shotgun, meaning used to claim the right to sit in the front passenger seat of a vehicle on a particular journey. Now, the expression refers to a passenger of an old-fashioned stagecoach who sat next to the driver with a shotgun to protect from attackers and robbers along the way. There's no evidence to suggest the expression was actually used in the times of the Wild West, but most likely came about much later on when the media and films began to romanticize the period. I didn't know this one. I asked Fultz because Fultz brought it up while we were uh, going over the pre-show. And he was like, you know, everybody knows Shotgun. And I was like, I don't know Shotgun. And then when he explained it to me, I was like, well, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I'm sure that I did hear that. I just... I couldn't put the two things together, and then when we read it, I was like, that makes absolutely perfect sense. Well, and what makes even more sense is if you are 
if you're going to try and rob one of these stagecoaches and you roll up on somebody that's riding shotgun, this next one may be you. So you could kick the bucket. Now, this one, just simply stated, means to die. The origin, though, is kind of crazy. When killing a cow at a slaughterhouse, people would place a bucket under the animal while it was positioned on a pulley. While trying to adjust, the animal, the cow, would kick its legs out and therefore kick the bucket before being killed. That's so great. (laughs) It's so weird. Yeah, because, I mean... I, I, to be honest, I never knew really what it meant. I was just like, I kick the bucket. I guess you die. Or I always pictured it as someone like kicking it, like, oh well, guess I'm gonna die now. Well, yeah, I mean, just the falling over of a bucket, it kind of symbolizes death. Yeah. But this puts two and two together, so there's a whole background to it, and it's from the slaughterhouse. Yeah. Now this next one's not as bad as a uh, you know dying, but. Uh, you probably heard the term, ah, close, but no cigar, meaning almost, but not quite successful. And the origin of this is the late 19th century. Carnival games were targeted to adults and not children. So the winners would get a cigar as a prize instead of stuffed animals. If the person was close to winning, but did not succeed, they'd say it was close, but no cigar. I think that's awesome. I love that one, too. Because carnival games now are all aimed at children so the fact that they were aiming carnival games at adults and giving out cigars it's just a really a cool sign of the times well if you think back in the 18th 19th century uh you know if you were working hard for your money typically to give it to children back then was probably like what why would they put what do they need they their whole day's a game all the time you know yeah exactly uh this one's cool if you are flattering someone, you're buttering them up. To butter someone up means to flatter or otherwise ingratiate oneself to someone. The people of ancient India used to throw butter balls of throw balls of clarified butter at the statues of gods in order to seek favor. So in India, they would throw these butter balls not at people, but at statues of the gods, just as, you know, praying to the deities, they're offering, like giving them an offering. Yeah, they thought it was a gift. So it was like, hey, if we butter them up, maybe we'll get rain. So I like that. This next one uh, is good too. Put a sock in it. Some of you just want them to stop talking. In the late 19th century, people would use woolen socks to stuff the horns of their gramophones or record players to lower the sound since these machines had no volume controllers. Dude, that's like a perfect example of why we're doing this show because put a sock in it. I mean, it just means to stop talking or to, to quiet down. But it doesn't. That's not exactly what it means, and that's not where it came from. It's, it doesn't just mean put a you know stuff a sock in your mouth. Yeah, it comes from the old days, man. Yeah, putting in a gramophone when you probably had to crank by hand and listening to some nineteen twenties music, and you don't want to wake everybody else. You don't want to wake up the kids. Yeah, put us out. Can I play this? Yeah, if you put a sock in it. <laughs> you know? Steve, this next one's great. Son of a gun, son of a gun, meaning. A jocular or affectionate way of addressing or referring to someone. Real son of a gun. You know this guy? Yeah, he's a real son of a gun. Yeah. Well, the origin back in the day, 
is that sailors would sometimes take their wives on long ocean voyages. And it is believed that if a woman gave birth on the ship, it would take place between the cannons on the ship's gun deck, since that was the most secluded place. Because of this reason, a child that was born on a ship would be called the son of a gun. It's so awesome. It's so simple, but no one would think... I mean, quite literal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This next one is really good, too. I mean, if you have some ride-or-die friends and you're going to get married and you're, uh, you're the groom, you're going to want to have yourself a best man. Now, the meaning, a male friend or relative chosen by the groom to assist him at his wedding. The origin, it is said, that during feudal days, it was possible that a rival lord would try and break up a wedding ceremony and steal the bride for political reasons. To avoid any trouble, the grooms would ask their best friends to stand next to them during the ceremony. So if they would need help, if a possible battle broke out, the man standing next to the groom was named the best man. It's incredible that that could happen. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, I always just associated it with, well, that's that's the closest person to you. Like a best friend. Right. Like a, a best friend is a best man. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, like, I need a guy here in case, in feudal days, in case a rival lord comes in to try and steal my wife while I'm marrying her. Well, yeah, like me and Steve were talking about when we were putting this show together. Like, it, it, it happened back, like, if you've seen the movie Braveheart and – um you know, the king at that time was like, you know, if we if we can't um, what if we can't uh, win them out or something, we'll breed them out. And he gave some order that there's some old time something nocte was going to be in in full law, and it happened. The guy got married, and the lord rode up, and he was able to have first rights to his wife on the wedding night, which that must have been terrible. No, but it was commonplace back then. So it was just something, it was like a tradition, you know, a law that would occur. And But people weren't really uh, accepting of it. I mean, human emotion hasn't changed that much. If you were the groom, you were still really mad. Yeah, man, I, I would be really mad about that. Anybody would. but uh, Completely. You know, it was the law of the land, and it's better to be really mad than dead, I guess. Yeah, in Braveheart, though, the, the groom ended up killing the guy that did it, so he got his goat. If that would happen to me, that would really get my goat. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so the next one, get your goat. See, and this one I hear quite often. Man, that really gets my goat. Mm-hmm. It means to irritate someone. And during horse racing, some horses would get anxious. So the owners would place a goat in the stall to calm them down. But rival horse owners would sometimes steal these goats before a race therefore upsetting the horse and making it more likely to lose. Savages. I know. They would sneak in and get their goat. Yeah, go over and get that guy's goat. And then it would get his goat because his horse would leave, and then you know, you'd be irritating him. And you would get the money. So have you ever said, well, we're gonna, if we're going to do it, we're going to do the whole nine yards, meaning to do everything that's possible or available. Now, during World War II, pilots would have a nine-yard chain of ammunition. When a fighter pilot used all of their ammunition on one target, they would give the whole nine yards. That is so cool. I have to interject with the story. Sure. The story that um, I found my dad uh, talking to our neighbor in in Ocean City, uh, Jack Young, uh, my friend, 
and he was a fighter pilot, Jack Young. So he told us about balls to the wall. And you may think it's a dirty thing or something, but it's really not. Right. Uh, if you go balls to the wall, very much like going the whole nine yards, uh, it would be they would have a, fight, a, a squadron commander and they would be flying in a formation. And in order to stay in that formation when accelerating, they would call out how fast they want to go. And the accelerator in the fighter pilot, in the fighter jet, would have a ball on top of it. And in order to go to the maximum speed, you would push the ball on the accelerator to the very front of the cockpit wall. And that would be as fast as that was as far as the the uh, accelerator would go. That would be as fast as the plane would go. So in order to for everyone to go as fast as they could at the same time, the squadron commander would announce to everyone, balls to the wall, and everyone would accelerate at the same time to the fastest that fighter pli- that fighter plane would go. And it's such an awesome story. I love that one. Yeah, because I mean. I'm sure a lot of people of you. Hey, are we going out tonight? Oh, we're going balls to the wall tonight, and nobody knows where it comes from. Yeah, but everybody knew. Oh man, we're going hard tonight, right? It's, I mean, everybody knows what it means, but everybody everybody doesn't know that origin, right? So, all right, Steve, this next one is yours. Yep, this one I say pretty much every night. Sleep tight. I always do Jackson's prayers with my wife, and then when we're leaving, sleep tight. Well, sleep well is what it means, said to someone when parting with them for the night. It's believed that the saying comes from Shakespeare's time when mattresses were secured by ropes. During that time, sleep tight meant sleeping with the ropes pulled tight, making a well-sprung bed. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I hope you're, you're wishing for them a good night's sleep by the manner of the, you hope that their ropes are pulled real tight and they're getting a nice firm mattress there. I love that. So have you ever been sold down the river or wanted to sell someone down the river? And if you do, you're betraying someone, especially so as to benefit yourself. Now the origin is this idiom comes from the 19th century in the Southern States of America. During this period, it was already illegal to import slaves, so there would be eternal tr- internal trades where people would ship slaves down the Mississippi River and sell them at the market. For this reason, selling someone down the river symbolizes betraying someone and using them for your own good, and you're just basically a scumbag. I mean, if you were involved in slavery, you, you know? Absolutely, Fultz, absolutely. So I, I like that one. I mean... Selling someone down the river, I've used it before, but I never really knew where it came from. And, man, it's uh, it's bad. It is. And I've heard it in past tense where they're like, man, I got sold down the river. Yeah. And it's just like, what? Now when you hear it, you'd be like, wow. Yeah, now it means something different. Yeah. All right. This is a great one with a mind your P's and Q's. Yeah, I love this one because it's tavern. It's tavern related. And I'm... I've been in the uh, the beer business here for the last two decades. So. Steve's, Steve's been in a few taverns in his day. So it means to be careful, to behave well, and avoid giving offense. You need to mind your P's and Q's. This expression has uh, a couple theories to its origin, but the best one is that it's the practice of chalking up a tab for the drinks for later payment. 
the P refers to pints and the Q refers to quarts. You would do well to correctly tally up the right amount as not to cause offense, especially after a customer's had a few beers under their belt. Again, there's, uh, you know, a couple different stories here, but the, the lettering on this one is correct. And it has like quite a literal translation from here. So I think this is really the one that, that it comes from. Mind your P's and Q's. Yeah, I like that a lot. What I like even more was you were able to tally up your own bill at bars back in the day. <laughs> like, you know what? And, and obviously serve yourself. I mean, the bartender, he must have just been, uh, if there was ice, keeping the ice cold or keeping the glasses clean. Well, a quart is two pints. So if you're having pints, you might have four or five. But if you're having quarts, you're really only going to have like two or three. Yeah, well, that's what they're hoping so that you mind your P's and Q's and don't forget to pay your bill. (laughs) So those are – I love all those. Um, We're going to jump into and go over uh, a few that we haven't mentioned yet. Um, those were some of our favorites that we threw out right away because we told you that uh, we were going to go balls to the wall and not and and pull out all the stops. Now, have you ever? Uh, yep, well, we already covered this one. White elephant. Now, this might not be something that it was. It was new to me, but white elephants were once considered highly sacred creatures in Thailand. The animal even graced the national flag in 1917, but they also wielded a subtle form of punishment. Now, according to a legend. If an underling or rival angered the Siamese king, the royal might present the unfortunate man with the gift of a white elephant. Um, it would be to reward him. The creatures were tremendously expensive to feed and house, and caring for one often drove the recipient to financial ruin. Whether any specific rulers actually bestowed such a passive-aggressive gift is uncertain, but the term has since come to refer to any burdensome possession, pachyderm or otherwise. So like a pachyderm would be like a rhinoceros elephant or anything with like really thick skin like that hard to take care of large animal hippopotamus so you're giving somebody a white elephant it's actually a burden to them yeah it's like you're giving them a gift but you're not really because it's going to cost them more than if you didn't give it to them but in the but in the king's eyes you're looked at as gracious people like man he gave him an elephant thank you very much for the elephant you're walking away you're like i can't believe i have this exactly i have an off script one i'll 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 give you faults. All right. You know, when you're sitting around with someone and you're just chewing the fat. Oh, yeah. Very good. Right? You hear that one all the time. Sure. I was sitting over there. What are you doing on Friday night? I was, uh, what'd you do? I was hanging out at my neighbor's house. You're just chewing the fat. This one's kind of cool. So, uh, prior to the adoption of metallic cartridges, most ammunition was composed of powder and a ball wrapped in either paper or cloth soaked in animal fat which was bitten off to open during musket drill. Soldiers were known to chew on these ends to pass the time and reduce the nerves, and in some cases to stave off cravings for chewing tobacco. So that takes you all the way back to musket days. I like that. And, you know, people say, what are you doing, just chewing the fat? They're like, ah, they're not doing much, just sitting around. Yeah, just hanging out. Yeah, this one I like, um, well, gosh, there's been many movies named after it, Die Hard. Now, while it typically refers to someone with a strong dedication to a particular set of beliefs, the term diehard originally had a series of much more literal meanings. In its earliest incarnation in the 1700s, the expression described condemned men who struggled the longest when they were executing when they were executed by hanging. The phrase later became even more popular after the 1811's Battle of Albora. 
during the Napoleonic Wars. In the midst of the fight, a wounded British officer named William Inglis supposedly urged his unit forward by bellowing, Stand your ground and die hard! Make the enemy pay dear for each of us. Inglis, Inglis's 57th Regiment suffered 75% casualties during the battle and went on to earn the nickname the Diehards. Dude, I think that uh, this would be a good time to bring up Bruce Willis. Man, that was the coolest movie when we were growing up. Oh, yeah, the... Uh the old adage of uh, whether it's a Christmas movie or not, people always like to debate. Oh, yeah, that's right, because they tried to make it into a Christmas movie. It's really not. No, I mean, they had Christmas. Well, it was Christmas Eve in the movie, and there was Christmas carols, and he was going to an office Christmas party, yada, yada, yada. It's a Christmas movie. <laughs> God bless Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis was diagnosed with aphasia and uh, has since retired from acting, but throughout uh, Fultz and I's whole life we we looked up to bruce willis and enjoyed all of the diehard movies and all of his acting so very good steve which one do you want to take you want to do uh... i got this next one right here okay. this one is cool because i've heard it and I, it's said it's not amazingly common but if you find someone resting on their laurels the idea of resting on your laurels dates back to the leaders and athletic stars of ancient greece Go your people, Steve. My my roots, my heritage. In Hellenic times, laurel leaves were closely tied to Apollo, the god of music, prophecy, and poetry. Apollo was usually depicted with a crown of laurel leaves, and the plant eventually became a symbol of status and achievement. Victorious athletes at the ancient at the ancient Pythian games received wreaths made of laurel branches and the Romans later adopted the practice and presented wreaths to generals who won important battles. Venerable Greeks and Romans or laureates were thus able to rest on their laurels by basking in the glory of their past achievements. Only later did the phrase take on a negative connotation and since the 1800s it has been used for those who are overly satisfied with their past triumphs. A.K.A. politicians. Yeah, and the uh, high school hero that's still at the bar talking about that Friday night football game from 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. What was that movie? Um, Napoleon Dynamite. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We would have been state champs, no doubt. No <laughs> doubt. In my mind. I bet you I could throw a football over those mountains. <laughs> <laughs> now, this next one I'm sure a lot of us have used. I've used it myself. But I, you know what? I'm going to read that guy the Riot Act. Now, these days, angry parents might threaten to read the Riot Act to their unruly children. But in the 18th century England, the Riot Act was a real document, and it was often recited out loud to angry mobs. It was instituted in 1715, and the Riot Act gave the British government the authority to label any group of more than 12 people a threat to peace. In these circumstances, the public official would read a small portion of the Riot Act and order the people to disperse themselves and peacefully depart to their habitations. Anyone that remained after one hour was subject to arrest or removal by force. The law was later put to rest in 1819 during the infamous Peterloo Massacre, in which a cavalry unit attacked a large group of protesters after they appeared to ignore a reading of the Riot Act. That's 1715, man. Jeez. I know. It's going back. That People getting read the Riot Act in Britain. Yeah. Let's see. What do we got next? I like these next couple of ones. Yeah, they're good. 
paint the town red, folks. Let's uh, go out and paint the town red. We've done that a couple times. The phrase paint the town red most likely owes its origin to one legendary night of drunkenness. In 1837, the Marquis of Waterford, Waterford, a known lush mischief maker, led a group of friends on a night of drinking through the English town of Melton Mowbray. The bender culminated in vandalism after Waterford and his fellow revelers knocked over flower pots, pulled knockers off their doors, and broke windows of some of the town's buildings. To top it all off, the mob literally painted a toll gate the doors of several homes, and a swan statue with red paint. The Marquise, is it Marquis or Marquise? Marquis. I like Marquise, but I'll say Marquis. And the pranksters later compensated Melton for the damages. But their drunken escapade is likely the reason that Paint the Town Red became shorthand for a wild night out. Still yet another theory suggests the phrase was actually born out of brothels in the American West and referred to men behaving as though their whole town were a red light district. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> no. I like, I like it. the first one. Yeah, me too. Yeah, that one's good. And, you know, when you're painting the town red, you might be running amok. Now, running amok is commonly used to describe wild or erratic behavior, but the phrase actually began its life as a medical term. The saying was popularized in the 18th and 19th centuries with European visitors to Malaysia who learned of a particular or a peculiar mental affliction that caused otherwise normal tribesmen to go on brutal and seemingly random killing sprees. Amok, derived from the amuko, a band of Javanese and Malay warriors who were known to for their henchment and indiscriminate violence was initially a source of morbid fascination for Westerners. Writing in 1772, the famed explorer Captain James Cook noted that to run amok is to sally forth from the house, kill the person or person supposed to have injured the amok, and any other person that attempts to impede his passage. Once thought to be the result of possession of evil spirits, the phenomenon later found its way into psychiatric manuals and remains a diagnosable mental condition even to this day. That one is so interesting. It really is. To run amok. I mean, you could have thought that they just made the word amok up or that you're running a muck. Right. But it's A-M-O-K, amok. And it actually means all of that, the amuko. And it does mean to just go crazy and run like crazy. And and go kill people and hold them responsible. Oh, my gosh. That's a good one. That was really a good one. Very good one. By and large. You do by and You practice this one. This one's one's like a ship going. Many everyday phrases are nautical in origin. Taken aback. Loose cannon and high and dry, all originated at sea. But perhaps the most surprising example is a common saying, by and large. As far back as the 16th century, the word large was used to mean that a ship was sailing with the wind at its back. Meanwhile, the much less desirable by or full and by meant the vessel was traveling into the wind. Therefore, for mariners, by and large referred to traveling the seas in any and all directions relative to the wind. Today's sailors and land lovers alike now use the phrase as a synonym for all things considered or for the most part. To by and large. Like if you're in a meeting at work or something and someone says, so you're, basically this is what you're saying and you just say, well, by and large. Yeah. So 
to travel in any direction, regardless or well, relative to the wind. Well, yeah, but they're saying that today it's now a cinnamon for all things considered, or for the most part. For the, for the most part, by and large. Yeah. All right. I think this might be the last one we have. I got, on our- here, I'll give you a bonus one. Ooh. A little bonus one. You ever meet somebody that's really, really enthusiastic about something? Never. And they say, uh, guy's real gung-ho about it. Oh, yeah. Good one. So the term was picked up by the United States Marine Corps Major Evans Carlson from his New Zealand friend, Rewi Ali, one of the founders of the Chinese Industrial Cooperatives. Carlson explained in 1943 interview, I was trying to build up the same sort of working spirit I'd seen in China where all the soldiers dedicated themselves to one idea and worked together to put the idea over. I told the boys about it again and again. I told them the motto of the Chinese cooperative's gung-ho, it means work together. Carlson used gung-ho as a motto during his unconventional command of the 2nd Marine Raider Battalion, leading to other Marines adopting the term to mean overly enthusiastic. From there, it spread throughout the U.S. Marine Corps, where it was used as an expression of spirit, and then into the American society as a whole when the term was the title of a 1943 war film, Gung Ho, about the 2nd Battalion Raiders uh, in 1942. So the guy, Evans Carlson, adopted it for his battalion, and then other Marines kind of made fun of it, right? Right. And then that that kind of made them talk about Evans Carlson as this overly enthusiastic guy and to mean gung ho was kind of a play on him, but it just spread so fast, spread through the whole Marine Corps, then spread into the American society where gung ho now means to just be really enthusiastic. I like that. I like it. And if you've ever been in the military and maybe you have a, screwed up or done something that you couldn't you may have been given the third degree by your uh, superior officer the third degree there are several tales about the origin of the third degree a saying commonly used for a long or arduous interrogations one theory argues the phrase relates to various degrees of murder in criminal code yet another credits it to thomas f burns a 19th century new york city policeman who used the pun third degree burns that's his name, when describing his hard-nosed questioning style. In truth, the saying is most likely derived from the Freemasons, a centuries-old fraternal organization whose members undergo rigorous questioning and examinations before becoming third-degree members or master masons. Now, me and Steve, we know this all too well. We did one of our live shows at a Freemasonry. Uh, We were invited there to do a show, and we did, and I know we've told the story on uh, previous podcasts, but we were checking our sound the night before, and we were going to the other side of the room to check it to see if everyone could hear over there. And we were walking by, I guess like they had like this little tabernacle, and there was a book on it. And I guess we got too close on it, and a couple of the guys there that were Masons were like, hey, hey don't be reading that book. And me and Steve were just kind of we looking at it. We were going to this corner to see if we can hear each other say, check. Yeah, by and large, I thought that was a really good show. <laughs> I did too. I had a lot of fun. I mean, that that was a crowd that we had to uh, win over because when me and Steve first took the stage and we looked out there, boy, it was stone faces. <laughs> and by the end, they all were coming up and uh, you know congratulating us and talking about our topic with us. We did the Mandela effect there, 
and we got into some uh, pretty heavy physics conversations with some of the guys, and it was a lot of fun. What's wrong, Fultz? Cat cut your tongue? No, never seems to be the case. Cat cut your tongue is an example of an expression being lost to time, but there are some theories with the least clear origins of the bunch. Uh, some believe this is related to ancient Egyptians. They used to cut out the tongues of liars. If you were lying back in ancient Egypt, they would cut out your tongue and feed them to the cat. So, you know, ancient Egypt is known for their cats. They would cut out a liar's tongue and feed it to the cat, and that person wouldn't be able to talk anymore. Jeez. So they would say, what's wrong? Cat got your tongue? Yeah, and I'll tell you what, after that, or after they got their tongue cut out, I bet you they, they were wishing that they could bury the hatchet. There you go. Now, Bury the Hatchet is a na- has Native American origin, and when two tribes decide to settle their differences and live in harmony, the chief of each tribe buried a war hatchet in the ground to signify their agreement. I've, I've heard that version. I've also heard a version where if two tribes come together and they're going to fight a third tribe, that the two tribes that make the agreement to unify to overpower the third tribe will bury a hatchet together meaning that they're going to go to war together. Right. I've heard that one as well. Okay, well, that's awesome. I think uh, I think maybe we should uh, end off here, Steve. Um, if you have in front of you Steal Your Thunder, I thought that that one was really great. That one is really cool. Steal Your Thunder is an idiom that might have a funny origin. It came from the 18th century. Dramatist John Dennis created an idea for a thunder machine for his play Appius in Virginia, but it didn't work. Now, fast forward to the little-known production, little-known, Macbeth, and alas, the idea was stolen for the play's production, therefore stealing one's thunder. Yep, that's crazy. I, I like that one. I think that's probably a good one to uh, to leave off on. So hopefully you learned a lot tonight. And uh, you know what? If you, if you don't always remember but someone says it, you just come back and listen to this episode again. Then come back and be like, well, you know where that came from. Yeah, you, you're going to know where all these things came from so you can educate other people. Yeah, so – If you want all the knowledge for yourself, that's fine. If you want to spread it, share this podcast with your family and friends. Big, hey, check this out. I bet there's a lot of things in here that you didn't know. So, well, until the next time we come back and tell you some things you didn't know, uh, I'm Foltz. And I'm Steve. And we'll see you next time. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.